Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash VGZ. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from UCB Biopharma SRL. Welcome to this Peer Voice panel discussion on axial spondyloarthritis. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Drs. Atul Deodar and Elena Marthortega. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Atul Deodar from Oregon Health and Science University, Portland, Oregon in the United States. Welcome to this activity entitled Achieving More from Standard of Care of Patients with Axial Spondyloarthritis. Joining me in this discussion is my esteemed colleague, Dr. Helena Marzo-Ortega from Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust in Leeds, UK. Welcome, Helena. Hello, Atul. So, Helena, um, can you give us a brief introduction about the burden of axial spondyloarthritis and what are the unmet needs in this area? Well, thank you, Atul. That's, that's an important question. And as you know, axial spondyloarthritis is a more complex disease than what we traditionally thought. So it's not only about the back pain or you know, the presence of arthritis in the, in the sacroiliac joints. Patients with this condition will have more problems. There will be emphysitis, typically in the lower limbs. There will be a peripheral arthritis in a subset of patients. And of course, we know that between 20 and 30% will also have extramusculoskeletal manifestations such as uveitis, psoriasis, or inflammatory bowel disease. As the condition goes on and inflammation remains untreated, there can be more uh, accrual of other problems such as, um, you know, risk of hypertension or cardiovascular disease that may go up, and even osteoporosis. All in all, this is a disease which behaves more like a syndrome, if you like, and all these comorbidities can contribute to impact significantly in patients quality of life. We know that there is a significant diagnostic delay, which I guess makes this burden even worse clinically as well as economic burden of this disease because of the delay in diagnosis. Do you want to uh, expand on that? Absolutely. I mean, to me, this is the biggest unmet need in this condition, because what we know is that Time and, um, you know, particularly uncontrolled inflammation over time can drive a lot of the complications of this disease, including the prevalence of extraticular or extramusculoskeletal manifestations. Now, what is incredible is uh, still in 2022, if we look at data coming from the Western world, we are still taking over eight years to diagnose patients with these conditions. Mm. In females, it's even worse. On average, it would take between nine and 12 months longer to be mm. diagnosed when compared to males. Thinking about the amount of pain and suffering that these people go through until they get a diagnosis, it is not surprising that a lot of complications occur in this time. So there may be a negative impact in psychology um, mm. and mental health in, in these patients. And this accounts for the 40% of prevalence that we have of anxiety and depression uh, with mm. this condition. Mm. Another really important consideration is that per year of delayed diagnosis, mm. the chances of people becoming work unstable increases mm. between 7 and 10%. So this is actually 
an emergency because we know that if people come to us beyond five years from symptom on onset, 90% of them will likely already be work unstable or about to lose their, their jobs. And this obviously has a huge impact in quality of life in how people go about their lives. Also, excess arthritis is a disease of young people. And so they kind of affects them in the prime of their youth. And uh, that becomes a, a problem as well. What is the best way of diagnosing this? How do rheumatologists diagnose um, external spondyloarthritis correctly and early on? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Because as you know, we do not have diagnostic criteria for this condition. So what we do is we do, uh, there's very much a pattern recognition, you know, based on symptoms, signs, and results from imaging and other investigations that help us make the diagnosis. But as you rightly pointed out, this is a disease of young people. The first thing we need to do is recognize the presence of back pain on a young individual, particularly if the back pain has started around or a, a younger than 45 years of age. If it has been going on for more than three months, that is definitely a chronic problem. And we need to start thinking about the possibility of this being axial spondylophritis. Traditionally, we've been basing a lot of the, um, of the weight on the diagnosis on the presence of a structural damage on the sacroiliac joints. Mm -hmm. That's where we tend to do an X-ray, particularly in uh, patients who are beyond 20 years of age. If there is damage there that is going to point us towards this diagnosis, more often than not, this is not the case. And we need to go and look for other features. It's important to remember that there are in a large number of clinical features that can happen in this condition. We've said before the presence of peripheral arthritis, the presence of emphysitis, particularly in the lower limbs, good response to anti-inflammatories, high CRP, presence of psoriasis perhaps, family history, there are many features that can point us towards the diagnosis of, of SPA. Yeah, and yeah. of course, imaging. If X-ray is not enough, we need to move on to more sensitive imaging methods. It is important not to base the diagnosis only on one single feature. So it's not about a positive MRI only or a positive E27. It's about the whole clinical picture and all the investigations. Thank you. The, I think the X-ray that is generally done in in practice uh, in non-rheumatology practices would be lumbar spine, which of course may not really show anything. One needs the sacroiliac joint X-ray. And you also mentioned these various features in the history and the spondyloarthritis features, and each of these kind of adds to the diagnosis because we don't have any diagnostic criteria, right? But Absolutely. We don't have a patognomonic symptoms or, or signs. We do not have a specific blood test and we do not have a specific criteria. Is the pattern recognition, I guess. Absolutely. What is the ultimate aim of the treatment? I mean, we diagnose these patients early and then what is the ultimate aim? There has been some studies which show that uh, what the physicians want and the patients want, there can be some disparity between them. Well, uh, I guess the ultimate aim to treatment if, is to completely ablate yeah, symptoms and signs of disease and if possible to arrest disease mm -hmm. progression. Yeah, I mean, I always say that ideally we would like to cure and this yeah. is probably what we understand by remission. Yeah, just to stop the disease altogether. But unfortunately, we're not there uh, as yet. I think from the physician's viewpoint, it is important to control inflammation. 
We know that inflammation is directly related to disease progression, in particular structural damage, and structural damage goes hand in hand with physical impairment and decreasing in function. When we ask patients what is more important for them, of course, cure would be what they would like to, to hear, but pain and fatigue are number one priorities. It is completely relevant and extremely important that we have these discussions with them when we're trying to treat the disease and try to go for their aims as well as what we think is important at the time of treatment. This is an interesting question. I work in the US, you work in UK. How do you measure remission when the patient comes back and the patient says, I'm doing well or I'm not doing well? How do you decide about the disease activity? The treat-to-target is one of the ideas has been uh, uh, gaining ground in rheumatology, especially with rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis, and also now in axial spondyloarthritis. How do you measure remission in your practice, uh, Helena? I mean, we have been talking about remission for, for a few years now, very much following the model from rheumatoid arthritis in which the paradigm is clear. You treat inflammation, you stop damage, yeah, yep. you preserve function. And um, I don't think we've got you know, that reality as clear-cut in axial spondylarthritis. There is still a lot we don't know, but we are uh, coming around to the idea that definitely, you know, the most important goal for us is trying to suppress inflammation. We have these outcomes that you've got here on the slide, particularly BASDA is something we've been very used to. But we know that BASTA is not specific, it's a very subjective measure. In Europe, we tend to use more ASTAS, looking at what is important for the patient, so patient-reported outcomes, plus an objective measure of inflammation, such as the the CRP, for instance, or the ESR, which is what is incorporated on the ASTAS. Yeah, in in the US, RAPID3 is the most commonly used uh, measurement in most of the rheumatology practices. It was developed for rheumatoid arthritis, and we have done a longitudinal study, cross-sectional study to show that RAPID3 correlates very well with BASDAI. Thank you so much, uh, Helena, for that discussion. I just want to summarize what we discussed. Axial spinal arthritis is under-recognized. It is very common, as you rightly said. There are uh, reports from epidemiological studies in the U.S. is about 1% of the population has this condition, but there is a delay of several years between the start of the symptoms of back pain And the diagnosis you mentioned, it is about 8.8 years or higher. The early treatment improves the symptoms, physical function, and quality of life, which both the patient wants and the doctor wants. And we need to be employing certain uh, measurements in our daily practice, such as ASDAS, BASDAI, or RAPID3, to decide whether the patient is receiving the best treatment and the patient is in remission or not. The main treatment goal for XLSPA is to maximize the long-term quality of life. And we do that by controlling the symptoms, by preservation of function, by social participation, and prevention of structural damage and also extra-articular and extramusculoskeletal manifestation. Now, the treat-to-target concept is not as yet well-developed as it is with rheumatoid arthritis patients. Thank you so much, Helena, for joining me, and thank you all for your attention. Thank you, Atul. A pleasure. Hello, I'm Elena Martha Ortega from Leeds Teaching Hospital Trust in Leeds in the United Kingdom. Welcome to this activity entitled Treatment Goals in Axial Spondylarthritis. Is the bar high enough? Now joining me in this discussion is my great friend and colleague Atul Deodar from Oregon Health and Science University, Portland in Oregon in the USA. Welcome Atul. Hi Elena. 
How about we start by talking about benefits and limitations of current therapeutic strategies? I mean, what are we aiming for? Do you think it is enough? Yeah, thank you. So um, the there are uh, lots of advances that have happened in the treatment of external spondyloarthritis. At the same time, there are limitations of what we can do. The ASAS ULAR uh, have come up with recommendations for the management of external SPA, and so has the American College of Rheumatology with the Spondylitis Association of America and Spartan. And what we are seeing here is the ASAS ULAR recommendations. This summarizes the current uh, state of affairs when it comes to management of axial spondyloarthritis. What it shows is axial spondyloarthritis has got axial disease as well as peripheral disease. And before we go on to uh, biologics, we always use first physical therapy, exercises. These are the non-pharmacologic treatment. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are the first class of pharmacologic treatment that we use, which work both for the axial disease as well as peripheral disease. The peripheral disease of axial SPA generally responds better to sulfasalazine than any other uh, conventional synthetic DMARD, and the conventional <laughs> synthetic DMARDs do not work on the axial disease. It also shows that local corticosteroid injections are useful for the treatment only for joint injections, etc. We avoid these injections for in thesis, which are especially weight-bearing. We then go to biologic DMARDs. Previously, we only had TNF inhibitors, and now the advances have given us two new classes of drugs like IL-17 inhibitor, JAK inhibitor as well. So this is the current state of affairs. And later on, we will, of course, discuss uh, what more is in future. I mean, what we know is that time matters, doesn't it? The longer we live disease and treat it, yeah, the higher the risk of developing complications. So what do we know about early treatment? Does early treatment really lead to better results? Early treatment definitely leads to better results. The, the reality is, though, that patients are not getting treated early. And not only there is a delay in diagnosing this condition, but once people are even diagnosed, we did a large international uh, survey uh, and we included something like 8,000, uh, close to 8,000 patients and uh, rheumatologists from 18 different countries, all five continents. And we were asking the question, once the patient is diagnosed, how quickly are they getting the advanced treatments beyond physical therapy and beyond non-steroidless biologic treatment? What we found out was nearly 30% of the patients don't even get treated beyond non-steroidals, even though they have got active disease. This particular slide shows multiple bars here, but basically what they are showing is in different parts of the world. The first set of bars uh, shows the quality of life measured by EQ5DL. The second uh, set of bars show the SF36 mm -hmm. mental physical component. And the last bars at the bottom show the physical disability. So even though whatever treatments we have and early treatment is the goal, people are not being treated aggressively. People are not getting the correct treatments. And those who are being treated, we are not changing the treatment dependent upon the, their disease activity. And does that matter? I mean, what is the impact of treating early? I mean, what do we know about progression rate? Yeah, so great question. So I actually generally answer this, that there are three reasons why we need to treat patients early and aggressively. The first reason is that the earlier you treat, the better 
bang for the buck you're going to get. In other words, if you treat early, you're going to put more patients into remission. More people will be getting significant control of their disease. That is the first reason. The second reason, as you mentioned, is early treatment will prevent disease progression, the radiographic progression. And the third reason, and I'll come to this in my next slides, <clears throat> is if you treat early and aggressively, there is a possibility that in some percentage of patients, you might be able to withdraw the treatment, which is also very um, attractive to the patient. What this slide shows is the early treatment leads to better results from the point of view of BASDAI 50, which is 50% improvement in the disease activity. The second thing is the percentage of patients achieving inactive disease. This is we measure by the ASDAS score of less than 1.3. But this particular study was on IV golimumab and it showed patients who had early disease, which is two years or less symptom duration versus those who had late disease, which is more than 20 years uh, symptom duration. Those patients who had two years or less symptom duration had much better control of, of their disease. Um, and, and we were able to put them into remission early on. Early treatment can reduce structural progression. Now, this comes from a large North American cohort where 334 patients with active ankylosing spondylitis were treated. And what they found was if you start TNF inhibitors early, they had less disease progression in the form of new bone formation. The progression is much worse if you start TNF inhibitors uh, later. And the last part, which I mentioned was withdrawal or dose reduction. This is something our patients really like. Patients always come and say that, well, will I be taking this drug for the rest of my life? Here we give, I'm giving four examples of four different trials done on four different biologics. Reembark was done on etanercept. Ability 3 was done on um, adalimumab. C-Optimize uh, was on sertolizumab. Uh, and, and the last uh, trial was on ixikizumab. Um, and all these trials, patients were treated early and aggressively with the biologic. And at certain stage, six months, four months, those who were in remission were randomized to receive placebo or the real drug. And of course, the patients who stayed on the actual drug did better than those who went to placebo. But if you look at the very bottom line here, with etanercept, 24% of the patients maintained inactive disease on placebo, on nothing else at all, for 40 weeks. With um, uh, adalimumab, 47% receiving placebo did not experience a flare. And the same thing with C-Optimize, where it was the sertolizumab and similar situation with ixikizumab. The point that I want to raise is early aggressive treatment. There will be sizable number of patients. We will be able to withdraw the drug, which is very attractive to the patient. Another reason why we should be treating them early and aggressively. So with all this plethora of treatments and all this data that we now have at all, what, what do you think? How do we decide which biologic yeah. drug is going to be the best cho choice for each right. patient? I mean, each of them is an individual, yeah, right. and uh, right. with different right. disease presentations very, very and true. different goals in life. Very true. And uh, individualized treatment should be our aim. If there is IBD, then TNF inhibitors would be working much better because IL-17 inhibitors can make the IBD worse. Uh, similar situation with acute anterior uveitis, the um, monoclonal antibody uh, anti-TNF 
treatment work probably the best. For psoriasis, somebody has got accompanying psoriasis, IL-17 inhibitors, I would personally prefer over TNF inhibitors. Now, mm-hmm. both TNF and IL-17 inhibitors possibly have very similar uh, efficacy when it comes to reduction of inflammatory burden. We are waiting for the first head-to-head study between TNF inhibitor and IL-17 inhibitor. Till that study comes out, we won't really know whether one drug is better than the other. Very good. So so what about individualizing treatment? I mean, how important yeah. is that? <laughs> this is extraordinarily important. And uh, each patient we have to take, uh, I mean, they have got uh, different needs. Some people have more fatigue. Some people have more pain. Some people have peripheral arthritis, which is why they are not able to uh, go to treat, go to stand up into, uh, into their daily job because of plantar fasciitis. We have to remember that axial spondyloarthritis, not, it's not just axial involvement, but there is peripheral involvement. There are peripheral arthritis. There is enthesitis. People have problems with sleep disturbances. Uh, people have problem with muscle stiffness. They have got uveitis. They have got IBD. As long as we remember that individual patient has individual needs, that probably is going to be the best clinical approach, individualizing the treatment. And it's about the shared decision making, right? Shared I mean, it's about discussing so what is important for each person. Now, I fully, true. I fully agree with you. So, so where are we going to? I mean, what what is the future holding in axial spondylarthritis? And in particular, do we have new therapies coming along? So, within the last year, outside of our TNF inhibitors and IL seventeen inhibitors, we have got JAK inhibitors very recently got approved in uh, Europe as well as in North America. One JAK inhibitor has been approved, uh, tofacitinib. The another one, upadacitinib, have completed their studies and that is in front of the FDA. Uh, and I think it is approved in, US, in, in Europe, not yet approved in the United States. IL-23 inhibitors, interestingly, they have got very good efficacy in the peripheral skeleton, but for the axial skeleton, IL-23 inhibitors are not really working. There are new drugs which block IL-17A and IL-17F together. One of them is bimekizumab, and that is uh, already they have completed their phase three trials. Uh, those will soon be presented and published. And IL-17A, IL-17F inhibitor will be the new type of biologic that we will be using. Well, thank you very much. This is all very optimistic and, and great news for our patients. This has been a great discussion at all. Um, you have told us about the current standard of care and how it is uh, on or, or consists of reducing disease activity in axial spondylarthritis. However, not all patients respond to treatment in the same way. It is also important to remember that treatment of patients with axial spondylarthritis should be individualized according to current signs and symptoms of disease, and of course, according to patient choice. There are a number of agents with different mechanisms now available. So thank you very much, Atoll, and thank you all for your attention. Thank you, Elena. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.